our uh, much-anticipated episode on Dorothy Sayers and the Lord Peter Whimsey novels. Long, long way. We haven't uh, actually even uh, recorded in a couple months at least. Yeah. This has been a major work. I don't know if we're going to do another one like this very soon. It was, what, 12 novels? 12 novels. We both read the 12. I read the 12 novels series for Lord Peter Whimsey for the third time, and you for the first. Yep. And it was, what, a year, two years in the making or so. Oh, at least. And then there were, uh, let's see, did you watch the movies? No, I watched the movies. We watched the miniseries. There was a short story. And then, of course, you read a bunch of biographies. Yes, and I read like three or four biographies. uh, Read to skim, depending on how interesting we were, of the author, Dorothy L. Sayers. So this has been a major work. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so I started reading this series of books that we're going to talk about before we even started this podcast. Um... And then, of course, it was clear that this would have to have to be an episode. But that's it's taken such a long time to get here. And part of that is because I love these books. I love this author, and I I think she's definitely a uh, little known compared to say Agatha Christie, who is kind of a, con- a rough contemporary of hers. They were writing around the same time in the golden age of British detective fiction. It was uh, you know just a beautiful flowering of of this genre, and it, it took place in England. It's, I don't know why. I think there are a lot of books written about the English character and their culture and why this would be such a, a popular thing or, and actually have its, really its source there. Uh, in, in the United States, Edgar Allan Poe is the author who was uh, credited with writing the, really the first detective no, uh, fiction. Uh, I don't think it was a novel. I think it was a short story. Um, so he, he tends to be credited with that, but I uh, Really, the um, the genre f- took its form in England. And so, anyway, Dorothy Sayers was one of the key players in that. She not only helped form the genre, she also played off of the established conventions in the genre itself. So she's a very complicated, interesting, intelligent uh, writer. Uh, she has a very different focus than, like, say, an Agatha Christie. And I think that She's going to be a really interesting topic for us to discuss her and her work. Uh, yeah, I'd say Agatha Christie is probably fo- very much focused on crafting mysteries, and Dorothy Sayers' mysteries are very well crafted, but her, she just has such a great scope that like leads us into being able to talk about a lot of interesting things. Yeah. Um, and I, I felt that when I was reading it. Um, well, using that as a touch point, I don't know if we should bring Christie in that much, but people are so familiar with her, even mm-hmm. if they've never read her. They've heard of her, and they pretty much kind of know what she was about. And I agree with you. I think that that's really true. And Christy had a very narrow scope of interest. She was a puzzle writer. So the people in the books really were sort of little chess pieces that she was moving around. And even her uh, heroes or her detectives, uh, uh, Hercule Poirot, let's see, Miss Marple, you know, they have enough personality so that they're not like a dead, dead on the page. Uh, and people really enjoy that. But it's really about the clues, laying out the clues, setting up the red herrings, and, and, and kind of trying to drive to the, the solution to the puzzle. The mystery for Sayers is really secondary to the psychological characteristics, uh, to 
the character growth to uh, social issues that she brings in. And we're going to be discussing all these. She's really more of a precursor to somebody like P.D. James, mm-hmm. who I don't think you've also read. Also, even the cleverness and the fun of her writing. like Oh, yes. Very, a lot of fun, uh, wit and, and, and a lot of erudition in it that I don't even understand. So you just have to kind of slide through that. But So there was a lot of that genre where it's really more focused on the people the characters and their yeah. inner lives and and pd james was really noted for that and uh people thought oh she's bringing this in she's bringing it back whatever but dorothy sayers was doing this way back when and i think that she really was the first one to really do that mm. so i think that was one of her biggest contributions to the genre that the psychology and the sociology is equally as interesting as the more interesting than the mystery itself. So there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, of course, clearly we want to highly recommend this book series to any of the listeners. And highly recommend that you read them in order because Lord Peter Whimsey himself and later on uh, another figure comes in, a key figure, Harriet Vane, and the the two of them develop as people over the 20 years of this period, as, as people do develop, and that's really fantastic. Okay, so... Let's just start off with, like, how did you first come across this entire book series? You know, I'm not really even sure. I, I, I know it was before you were born. It was, when I, but I was in Seattle. So uh, I think it may have been through maybe your grandmother, your, your dad's mom. Uh, maybe your dad mentioned it to me. I know that they had read them. And so I was reading a lot then, and I picked it up, and I just, I started with Whose Body, which is the first novel, and I just fell in love with Lord Peter Whimsey, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) To be to be honest here. We'll talk more about that later. (laughs) I mean, in real life I don't know. (laughs) But on the page he's wonderful to me, for my taste. Because he's nervy, he's intellectual, he's super smart, he's super capable, but he puts on this facade of being a little bit goofy, that sort of upper-class English thing that they would do where they drop their Gs and they act all insouciant and like, oh, you know, like they don't care. But underneath, you know, he cares, he's kind, he's deeply sensitive to people. Super romantic. Super romantic, has a a real emotional vulnerability as well in certain circumstances. And so, uh, yeah, so then I just read them through, all the way through, and I just was crazy for them. And uh, that's how I got started on it. How did you get started on it, Miss? Well, we've talked about um, the fellowship that I went on a couple, like 2015, 2016, a little bit in previous episodes, so I don't think we need to catch anyone up on that, but um, near the sort of middle end of my trip, um, mom came to visit me in Korea, which we talked about even more. See our Korea episode, it's tons of fun. (laughs) And at that point, I had been, I got to read a lot during my trip and was kind of... Um, So I got to read a lot and was hungering for books, and mom was slated to visit me, and I was like, please bring me more reading material. And uh, I think maybe you mentioned that it was finally time to get me to read this book series, because you'd talked about it a lot, and I'd just been doing other things, not super interested. Oh, yeah, totally. I think the corner of your lip curled and your nostril flared like... (sighs) Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Don't even. (laughs) So I had a lot of time on my hands, and you brought me a selection of books. Um, And so you brought me the first one or two books, and uh, I 
de- pretty much devoured the first one, and it was so- something about, I don't know, I'd just been away from home for a long time, and uh, it was so fun and yet, like, meaty in mm-hmm. terms of, like, the intellectual elements of it and how literary it was and this sort of English, super English thing. I was really enjoying, like, consuming that, and so... Subsequently, David came to visit me, and I was like, please bring me some more of those books. So Mom sent along the next few, and I I read those during my trip. And then ever since I got home, I've been working and busy as I am, and so it's taken me an entire Well, the books also get fatter as you go along. They get longer and more dense, too. It's been two years. It was a lovely ride. Two years. (laughs) I'm going, so, how far along are you? So, what page are you on? (laughs) Same page. Same page, Mom. (laughs) <laughs> but then I was reading them in tandem with you. Right. But since I'd already read them and... And your quickity split. So that's kind of how we came into these books. Where should we go next? Do you want to talk about Dorothy? Yeah, why don't we talk about Dorothy and then uh, we can get into the books. Uh, Dorothy herself is a really interesting person. Uh, she was born uh, June 13th, 1893. So uh, she just... Uh, She's really a woman of the early 20th century, but she's really got her foot in the 19th century for sure. And she was born in Oxford, and her dad was uh, like a choir master at Oxford when she was born. And so she, her first several years were were in that environment. She remembers it well, actually. She remembers the ivy on the walls, and she talks about her memories. And they they really have a, just this glow of nostalgia and the you know the beauty of the place and it was really a place of wonder for her and clearly she was very loved she was an only child so basically her um, father's name was Henry Sayers and her mother's name was Helen Lee Sayers so that's how where we get Dorothy L Sayers because it's Dorothy Lee Sayers but basically what happened then is when she was fairly young her dad moved them all to a parsonage where he became the rec- the rector I guess it's Church of England so I'm sorry if my terminology is wrong <laughs> I don't I don't ha- I don't have the, I know the curate is like sort of the assistant guy because uh, I read a lot about curates but I think he's called the rector maybe the pastor I don't know anyway he's not the priest I do know that so anyway they move and uh, Dorothy and her parents and then Dorothy's a couple of her aunts who uh, are elderly aunts who are unmarried and they move in with them too so she's got this coterie of adults who are all taking care of her a lot older than her and she's it and and this is in the middle of the country so there's not it's not a neighborhood there's not other kids to play with so she was pretty much thrown on her own devices except for a few like friends now and then or relatives like cousins who would come over and play with her and um, one of these cousins her name is Ivy Shrimpton very very close friends and Ivy will become very important later in, in, in Dorothy's life but she was a constant source someone who was very she was very close with and I think really helped her feel more stable emotionally because she had this friend but Dorothy I don't know she I think she's probably hell on wheels theatrical in the extreme she was uh, she you know just put on put on plays and wore costumes and imitated people and you know and, and she super vivacious super loud super super I mean she was and, and brilliant just a really really smart kid she learned uh, French and she so she was uh, bilingual in French and English so she wrote and read in French as good as a native speaker which was really a great source of pride to her but she also learned latin and greek and studied poetry she mm-hmm. really had the kind of education that a boy would have had at that time in terms of the liberal arts and the humanities 
fantastic. So anyway, she's raised in this in this environment where she's pretty freewheeling and really, really smart. So uh, ultimately, they decide, okay, it's time for her to go to school when she's 15 and a half. So she's had all this time where she's the center of the universe, and then she's going to go to an all-girls school, uh, off to boarding, boarding school at 15 and a half. Wow. It, it, it kind of was. She really wanted to go, but uh, it was called the Godolphin School. And she gets there, and she doesn't know how to, she's not socialized. So she gets there, and she's loud and, and bossy and opinionated, and she does not get along well. And then she gets really sick, I think with measles, and then all her hair falls out. I kid you Aww. not. All her hair falls out. So she, she was uh, suffered from alopecia all her life where she would get really stressed, and her hair would fall out. This happened frequently throughout. I mean, so it was always something she felt very insecure about. She never was real confident in her looks anyway. So anyway, she does manage to get through school and kind of kind of figures it out. And then she, but she's so smart, she still does great in school, and she ends up getting a scholarship to Oxford. Nice. Which is awesome for her because, the, you know, she loves it. She loves that place so much. And it's college. So uh, to be intellectually competitive was pretty much expected. So she, she got there. She formed a circle of friends. She lived there. They, they, yeah. they lived in the dormitories. The, you know, so there would be late-night cocoa parties, and they <laughs> would get together in people's rooms and have cocoa and talk. And they'd, go to, they'd sneak down to the buttery at night and, <laughs> right. and, and steal snacks out of the buttery if it was unlocked, you know, because <laughs> they would lock up the kitchen. And, oh, she just had a great, great time. And she studied music and literature and so forth. And luckily... Um, her personality was really accepted there and basically this this is sort of the the golden period of her life emotionally you know everybody has that sometimes it's very early in your life sometimes it's later it depends on but where everything came together in just the right way for you So I want to note before we move on that Dorothy Sayers was actually in the first class of women to graduate from Oxford. Well, actually, uh, not quite the first class. Um, The class she was in in 1915, which is when she left Oxford, when she completed her work at Oxford. But at that time, Oxford didn't consider women to be worthy of degrees. They had a separate college. It was segregated by genders, and women could go there, but they didn't get a degree. So it wasn't until 1920 that degrees were actually awarded. And then you're right, she did go back that year. That was the first year women got degrees and got her degree for her work back in 1915. Her master's. Her master's, uh, which is pretty impressive. And there's actually a photograph online you can see of her, the kind of the back of her in, in the line getting her degree. But while she was at Oxford, she also kind of began to become interested in having a relationship and finding relationships with men and so forth. And there was a choir master there uh, who was a very, very famous Bach uh, scholar and musician called Sir Hugh Percy Allen. And she had a big crush on him. And this is, I, 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 am, I actually get embarrassed for Dorothy, even though she's yeah. dead. <laughs> I kind of get embarrassed for her, although she didn't care, so I don't know why I should be. But she, she felt something, it was out there, man. And so she would go around, everybody knew, she was loud about it. And I mean, this guy, nothing, well, you know, something, I suppose, 
potentially could have happened, but it didn't, though she would kind of meet him up in the choir loft and they would like canoodle a little bit. <laughs> but Dorothy was not somebody who's going to sleep around anyway. They didn't have that kind of freedom back in those days. But she would, there's a photograph of her dressed up like him and like pretended to conduct Bach choir, which she was in. And if you look that picture up and then you look at him, she, she it nails so well. it. She gets every, I mean, it's per, the, even the exact angle of her arm. I mean, so her observation of this guy, first of all, she had such perception and observational skills, and she um, applied them intensely embarrassing sort to, of an, obsession. to an embarrassing amount. I mean, it really is like that. You yeah. know, like somebody who leaves notes or something. It's just, oh, anyway. And then there was a, um, another uh, guy that she met named Eric Welpton, and he'd be a great picture to look at because she had a type. And it is the type that she describes whimsy as, uh, usually with lighter hair, a long, thin nose, and a long, kind of thin face. And in fact, there was a guy that she met uh, while she was in college called Roy Ridley. A lot of people say, well, he's the model for whimsy. I don't think there's any one model for whimsy, even physically. But you look at him and you you see it perfectly. So if you look up Roy Ridley, he was a writer. And he wrote all kinds of different books, including a biography of my favorite dead guy, Abraham Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) which I looked at. It's really not very interesting at all. Anyway, so there's Roy Ridley, and then she meets uh, Eric Welpton, and he's the next guy she gets a seriously major crush on. She really, he's her age about, and she really does want to have a relationship with him big time. And so she gets out of school. This is without her degree until 1920. And what's she going to do now? Because her parents don't have a lot of money. They're just barely getting by. They can't really support her, although her father does try to help her out. And she's a woman, so she can't just do whatever she wants. And what is she going to do with this degree? She's really kind of at a loss. Well, Eric Welpton is going to go over into France and teach at a school. So he offers her a job there. So she, she's all excited about that. She's going to be with him. And they go over and they teach for a while. And, and this is a pattern. This is really a key thing. I think it's a pattern for her life. And that is that she will get all intensely attached to someone, a man. And it's embarrassingly, I mean, she's vulnerable, but it's also embarrassingly needy. There's just this huge neediness around, to me, belies her intelligence, her capability, and I think her, what she has to offer, which is a lot. I mean, she could be a very lovable person, I'm sure, you know, even though she could also be a difficult person. And so she's, she's got this pattern where she gets attracted to these guys who are kind of unavailable. Oh my God, she should have read all those self-help yeah. books, you know, kind of unavailable. Just not that into you. Kind of not, yeah, he's just not that into you. But she would be so into him and then it would be, and she would pursue them and then it would break her heart when they rejected her. And this is what happened. I mean, he liked her fine and he might've had some interest in her for a while, but then he wasn't that fond of her anymore, but she was so intensely into him. And then he he left to go into the army, I think, or to get another job. And so she was left there at the school. She could stay and work or she would leave. But it was just an ongoing, constant frustration with her that she couldn't make the kind of connection or find the kind of man that she wanted. And there, ergo, she creates Whimsy, who is, he's unavailable, but he is ultimately available to the right woman, which is a, really a lot of the female fantasy. Anyway, but Dorothy often took the things that happened in her life, the pain, the, the aggravation, and the things that she loved all, 
and would put them in her books, which yeah. is why they're so alive. They're each so different. They're mm -hmm. so, to me, captivating. And there's a sensuality to them. Mm -hmm. And she lo obviously loved food and drink and just e even very material things. And so the books themselves are pretty sensory. And like, I think there's a quote online that's easy to find where she didn't have very much money. And so she mm -hmm. was like, when I had practically nothing to eat and no carpets on the floor, I would write, you know, whimsies like beautiful brand um, new Turkish or yeah. you know, brand new carpet. So I'd give him a new carpet or a new car. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, I read these things and I feel, I feel for her. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think most people have had at least one relationship like that, but it's just like for her every single relationship until she gets to her husband who he's a throwaway. <laughs> he's a throwaway. But anyway, we'll get to him later. But anyway, so poor old Eric leaves and, and it's right after this time that she begins to think about how she's going to make some money. First thing she does is she uh, writes poetry. She loves to write poetry. It's actually not generally that good. I shouldn't whisper. I like, like, she, like she can't hear me or something. <laughs> uh, it's not that good. Um, there are a few snippets in some of her books where she uh, gives poetry to, to another character, to a character to write that are beautiful. Mm -hmm. But her poems, and they also tend to be they're pretty heavy. She also, you might be able to speak better to this, Zoe being a poet for any of our new listeners yes. <laughs> who don't know this, <laughs> but she's very rule-bound. She likes the rules of having a meter and a foot and a rhyme and a whatever, all those things. Lots of enjambments. No, I don't know. I just like that word. <laughs> Enjambment. Enjambment. Anyway, so she published two books of poetry that didn't, didn't sell at all. And she ended up working at a publisher's office, which was perfect for her. But what ha what it was is they weren't really paying her. Her father gave them a thousand pounds so that they would take her on. I mean, like, she knew about it. It wasn't yeah. like a, like they were fooling her, so that they would take her on and she could learn the business and everything. Mm -hmm. And then her weekly pay came out of that thousand pounds. <laughs> I know, man. They got a deal. I mean, yeah, she got seriously. in there. She bought ball of fire. She 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 got to know about publishing and everything. And then this is where something comes together and she says, I have to write, I've got to write a book. I need to write one of these mystery books that are so popular and make a lot of money. And that's really why she started awesome. writing Lord Peter Whimsey. That's pretty awesome. Exactly. And, and then they were immediately successful or? They were pretty immediately successful, actually. I mean, not huge bestsellers, but they sold enough that she made some money. She still had to work for decades after that, as do many, many authors. Most of uh, the books didn't uh, pay her that much, but they made a difference and they helped. So she started writing the, her first book, Whose Body? And I, I love the premise of it, where this little man, Mr. What's his name? Mr. Threep? Mr. Thrips. Mr. Thrips. <laughs> she has some good good names. Yes. Awfully good names. Poor little Mr. Little Mr. Thrips, as they like to call him, who's an accountant. That was my tea glass. I'll have to that's, remember not to drink out of that. That's hilarious. You need a straw. Get one of the straws. Um, Mr. Okay, so anyway, uh, Mr. Thrips comes home. He looks into his bathroom, and there is a naked body of a dead man wearing only a pair of pince-nez. I think that's how you say it. <laughs> Pince-nez for those of us who yeah. uh, don't know how to pronounce it. Which things. are those glasses they used to wear that don't have any, um, oh, what do they call them? Um, arms. Yeah. I think they don't hook around your ears. Yeah, they don't hook around the ears, but I think they're called, no, sides. They're called sides. Oh, okay. That's what, um, I didn't know that. That's what optometrists, not optometrists, well, you know, oculists, you know, people who make glasses. 
That's okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. they're called sides. They're called sides, yeah. and they don't like it when you call them other things like thingies that go around your ears or <laughs> or, or arms or legs or whatever. <laughs> anyway, they they're the ones that they 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 they, they pinch your nose. So he's only wearing a gold a golden pair of pince nez. Pince nez. I don't know. I should look it up. And they're from the mystery ensues uh, yeah. and it's uh whimsy's called in and thrip is thrips is a an accountant for no, the whimsy family i think like an architect oh he's an architect yeah. oh that's right he's working on their chapel yeah on restoring the chapel mm-hmm. at duke's denver which is the uh the home of the whimsy family um whimsy is being the younger son is not the duke his older brother is the duke and so anyway he calls up uh, the mother uh, whimsy's mother's awesome She's great. She's really great. Talk about fierce women, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but 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 she's like a daffy fierce woman. Yeah. Kind of, she's kind of daffy, but she's she's with it, man. Yeah. yeah and she's very <laughs> insightful. Insightful. Lady. And she really she really understands whimsy. They're kind of in a way soulmates. But so that's where the book begins and she takes it from there. And whimsy's sketched out. He's not certainly not full, but she really focuses primarily on the split that probably happened to a lot of men. He was in the war. He was an officer in the war. And do you want to talk about uh, his... Sure, yeah. So first of all, yeah, Dorothy doesn't mention very many descriptive characteristics of him, but she's kind of harsh sometimes, like especially in the first book. I think she describes his face something about Like a rabbit? She says something about maggots underneath the hat or something. Uh, I I think that's something he says about his own face. (laughs) And then there's also, no, yeah, she she doesn't, and then, but she does talk about his nose and and it it wiggles like a rabbit. This is pretty unattractive. Yeah. (laughs) So somehow almost like trying to deny her attraction to him or something, you know? He's um he's a World War One veteran, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a, a commanding officer at the time. And so, um, when he got drawn into the war, I think they tell you more explicitly later. But he constantly had to make really tough decisions, and a lot of his men died. And at one point, he gets pretty much buried alive. So he has like a lot of trauma left over from that, and a well, lot yeah, of PTSD. He has P- PTSD, which they called shell shock time. Right. And he would have night terrors, and he would lose his marbles. He, totally. Yeah. I mean, he would really go crazy. Quiver like jelly. Yeah. And, and so there's that, that side of him that is extraordinarily damaged by the war. And on top of it, he had had a love affair with Barbara, who he was... And, and, and knowing Whimsy, Whimsy gives his heart 100%. Whimsy's all in. And he went all in for this woman. And then she, while he was away at the war, ended up marrying someone else. And that was also those two things together, both the physical and the emotional devastation, have wrecked him. And so on the surface, he's Mr. Clicking His Heel, jolly old chap, quoting poetry, being all goofy. But underneath, he's like a a cesspool of pain. Yeah. (laughs) So he came home completely destroyed. And I think eventually he kind of pulls himself together. And solving mysteries becomes sort of his way forward. It's almost like a a Sherlock Holmesian thing, where if he doesn't have a mystery going on, everything, for, for Holmes, it was boredom. He would just be so bored that he would have to, have to take drugs. Where with whimsy, all of his demons would rear up. But the other thing that really saved him, and this is part of the lovely thing of the books, is that his Batman, whose name was Mervyn Bunter, Bunter. <laughs> and uh, Mervyn Bunter shows up uh, afterwards, and he um, he comes in and. Uh, takes over as his butler, and he gets whimsy. He knows whimsy, and he loves whimsy too. They love each other as uh, they're 
they have a, a fraternal bond that is forged by the war and understanding and both of them are very well they're both invested in the social order so having the master and his man and that's very much part of their dynamic they both almost winkingly but they both completely adhere to it at the same time and so bunter takes care of whimsy he sees to everything everything is right there in front you know that whimsy needs before whimsy knows it but when whimsy cracks up bunter's the one who stays up at night with him, who calms him, who figures out how to stabilize uh, what's going on and, and just kind of rides through it with him. And so it's a really wonderful relationship um, that it would be very hard to have this relationship with anybody other than a family member in any other kind of situation where there weren't these, this servant-master relationship. And so um, I'll let Zoe wax on upon bunter (laughs) so i love bunter um i'm I'm a whimsy girl she's a bunter girl yeah i don't know i love pragmatic men i had something like that just oh he's a man's man butlers and monks i don't know what it is yeah yeah i've got a thing for butlers and monks (laughs) (laughs) so so he's um he's but we know he's broad-shouldered dark-haired and good-looking and he's he's quite much as whimsy can be Bunter is a ladies' man, but without the baggage of the sensitivity. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not cruel or or he's very gentlemanly and gallant, but he's uninvested. So he he does a lot of um, legwork for whimsy. He um, will flirt and talk with the servants, and because servants hear everything, so he'll get information that way. And he uses a camera. He photographs evidence, takes prints, things like that. He's a, he's a technician. Yeah. He's essentially the technician of their of the team. Because yeah. Whimsy doesn't do any work. Whimsy <laughs> he doesn't like to do any of that. He doesn't do any leg work. Uh, if if he's not if he needs something done, either Bunter does it or um, the police do it. Right. Uh, he's got a connection with Chief Inspector Parker, and um, so he basically when he's working on a case with him, he just yeah they you need to go door to door and ask everybody. He's like see ya. Yeah. I'm all be at my club. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's very much the Lord. And she does, and she does, even though he's a wonderful character and very lovable, she does give him his faults in terms of particularly his class status. But we don't want to get into that, right? We want to kind of hit the books first and we'll talk about these things as we yeah. go through. Yeah. Yeah. So Whose Body is is quite a delight, and there are 12 novels. We're not going to go through every single one of them. <laughs> so the next one is Clouds of Witness, which, again, is a delight. It, there's, a, there's airplane flying and all kinds of adultery and all kinds of stuff in it. But uh, we're going to move on to the third novel because that really has some um, juicy. Meat, juicy stuff. It's got some meat in it that really kind of reflects what we're trying to say is that she really brings sociological and psychological aspects into her novels. And I, it's a really good illustration because she really brings up a lot of stuff. So uh, do you want to do a real quick little pre-say of the, what the... Yeah, sure. Not, not give, we won't give away any endings or anything like that. In Unnatural Death, the setup is that there's an old lady. She's been bedridden for a really long time. She has some a lot of money um, and... She dies kind of quietly, but there's something fishy about it. I think a doctor friend of Whimsy's is talking about it at a party or something like that. And uh, and so Whimsy tries to track down the mystery. Yeah, so it's fa- fairly simple, but a lot of people and, and issues and things pop in. So do you want to hit the first one that interests you? Yeah, um, so it introduces 
one of our all-time favorite characters, reoccurring characters in the series. Her name is Miss Clemson. She uh, she has a hilarious voice. Um, she writes letters to Whimsy. He sends her on investigations. She's so she never married. Well, the thing is about Miss Clemson is that she uh, is Sayers contending with the issue of women's place in society. That women are not seen as capable, able. There are so many things that they're not allowed to do. And Miss Clemson is really her middle finger to society on that issue. And it also brings in the issue that, uh, you know, uh, World War I happened. A massive amount, numbers of men were killed off. And, and in England, it was, there were a lot of women who never got married and never could get married because their loved one was killed in the war and there were no other men. So these women, not rich, we're not going to be, you know, wives and mothers in the traditional way, had to get out there and work in society, so they had very few options. And Whimsy is a remarkable, this is where he's remarkable and wonderful, in that he really does respect women. And you never really get in any time where he doesn't have a respect for women in general. You might not respect a specific woman, but that's different. And he sets up a, he calls it his cattery, right. <laughs> where he has, uh, it's all women. It's all single women, a.k.a. spinsters, as they, they've been called. And it's a detective agency. And basically, the front is that it's an employment agency for nurses' aides and secretaries and all office kinds. work and that kind of thing. Exactly. And he sets this up because these women are a huge wasted asset. They are like a natural resource waiting to be used, um, and he taps it and gives them employment. Um, so I'll read a quote about it. Awesome. Who is Miss Clemson? Miss Clemson, said Lord Peter, is a manifestation of the wasteful way in which this country is run. Look at the electricity. Look <laughs> at water power. Look at the tides. Look at the sun. Millions of power units being given off into space every minute. Thousands of old maids simply bursting with useful energy forced by our stupid social system into hydros and hotels and communities and hostels and posts as companions where their magnificent gossip powers and units of inquisitiveness are allowed to dissipate themselves or even become harmful to the community while the ratepayers' money is spent on getting work for which these women are providentially fitted, inefficiently carried out by ill-equipped policemen like you. <laughs> My God, it's enough to make a man write to John Bull. And then... Bright young men write nasty little patronizing books called Elderly Women and On the Edge of the Explosion, and the drunkards make songs about them, poor things. Quite, quite, said Parker. You mean that Miss Clemson is a kind of inquiry agent for you? She is my ears and tongue, said Lord Peter dramatically, and especially my nose. <laughs> she asks questions which a young man could not put without a blush. She is the angel that rushes in where fools get a clump on the head. She can smell a rat in the dark. In fact, she is the cat's whiskers. And she appears as a elderly, thin, little bird-like, tweety woman who twitters and twitters and tweets and bat backs on herself and and oh, oh, and yet she is resourceful. She brave, brave. She really is brave. She goes. She goes into real some real dangerous things right mm -hmm. into it, and uh, she's surprisingly um, well organized. Mm -hmm. Even though her speech patterns aren't, her information is. So she's a wonderful character. And she's the kind of character that in other books where someone behaves like that is irritating. And you hate them. Mm -hmm. And just wish it would be over. In this case, she's delightful. Uh, she's delightful. I wish there was more of her. Yeah, me too. <laughs> she could have her own series. In two books, she has major 
major yeah. roles. And then she might appear in one or two others as very, very peripherally. Yeah. And that's yeah. it. There's an excellent scene in the book where she conducts a seance. It's oh, really awesome. It, it's amazing. Yes. Yeah. It's really amazing. So Miss Clemson is a great example of like inherent feminism that like whimsy is is pushing or sort of represents champions. Right. And that, and that, re- that does represent uh, Dorothy Sayers' irritation, her her frustration with the place of, of women in, in the workforce. Yet she also has, like I said, her foot in the 19th century where she also denigrates females. And she doesn't, she says she doesn't trust women. Mm-hmm. She trusts men, which is, given her life, I mean, <laughs> it seems like the women and her friends are the people who are behind her and the men are the ones who are betraying her. But she, she and this is, a, a, I think, a very key point of in her character is she identifies with the masculine because the masculine they're free they intellectual intellectual whatever and i think that a lot of her aggressiveness if you will assert i won't even say assertive, but her aggressiveness as a person sometimes is comes out of the fact that she's super smart she's very very capable and she like miss clemson and a lot of these women don't get to have the outlet for their intellectual capabilities and their personal capabilities and even though later she becomes very successful as an author she, you know, those influences in early life where she was really suppressed by the culture, you know, that, that really formed her personality and, and the combative part of her personality. And also her disdain for, for her own gender, which she many, many times would say. But on the other hand, she had a great quote that I love, and she talks about men and women, and it was, um, every great man has a woman behind him, and every great woman has some man or other in front of her tripping her up. I thought that was very funny. So yeah, so uh, that's one of the uh, one of the key themes that begins to emerge, and it's in every book, really, to some extent. But it's always part of the story. It's always interesting, and if you, you know, it's she doesn't ever become didactic in her um, storytelling. And then also in this in this story, there's uh, a, a lesbian character, right? Which is uh, which is interesting. Pretty you know, interesting. Too often, she's evil. Yeah, um, and she's probably the scariest character in all yeah. the books to me, actually. Yeah, yeah she is, isn't yeah. she? You know, it doesn't feel like it has anything to do really with her sexuality. It just creates an interest. I think she's just using that yeah. for interest. It isn't. It makes the plot work, yeah. essentially. But Because in a lot of these books in this time, the introversion of being homosexual is seen as uh, that it warps you. And yeah. It, cre- it makes you bad. Yeah, and there's... It's it's interesting at all that like someone would write a lesbian character into their story like pretty explicitly at the time I guess um, but it's not super explicit it's kind of like oh she hates men mm-hmm. that's kind of the way it's talked about um, another point about whimsy is like at one point he meets this character and she's trying to seduce him in order to blackmail him or something like that mm-hmm. she like touches him and he can he he's sensitive to the fact that she's actually kind of revolted by him and yeah. but yeah but but yet she's putting on this facade mm-hmm. and that helps him like understand what's happening and right and so he uses it but i think that one of the key things that comes out about his personality is that he is attuned to women he's not a man who is focused on himself and his pleasure and what he what's going on for him because then he would be sucked into this but he's actually attuned to the pleasure and the the sexuality of women mm-hmm. and so by implication she's really saying that his sexual life is a conversation or an exchange it is not a one-way street the way it 
probably frequently was for most men, where it's like, oh, that was good for me. Mm-hmm. You know, right? Yeah, I got what I wanted. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And and Sayers, uh, she did write a really funny, a real funny bit about that. Yeah, it's called. Um, she was very like interested in in sex, and so it comes totally. up a lot in the books. And yeah. And I think that was the other thing that didn't fit well with the time, is she was robustly sexual, as well as being sensual, and kind of unashamed and blatant about it. But at the same time, she was also religious and didn't believe in sex outside of marriage or sex without having a child, and she was very back and forth about all this. Uh, we'll talk about later when we get to um, a later book where it really comes up big time. But um, she did write this rather humorous uh she wrote it a little bit later not around this time but it's really quite funny it's called discourse on bedworthiness she writes the assumptions are one that the primary aim and object of bed is that a good time should be had by all (laughs) two agree that it is the business of the male to make it so (laughs) three that he knows his business the first assumption rules out at once all Satromaniacs, which is the male equivalent of nymphomaniac, sadists, connoisseurs of rape, egotists, and superstitious believers in female reluctance, as well as Catholic, replenish the earth, utilitarians, and stock breeders. So you're not just having sex to have children. The second assumption rules out the hasty, the clumsy, the lazy, the inconsiderate, the preemptory, the untimely, or those who are without skill in the management of bed furniture, or wind the whole combination, meaning sheets and pillows and stuff, into toppling and insecure complications of pillows and blankets, or bang their partner's head against the wall. (laughs) The third assumption rules out the tentative as well as the incompetent and inadequate. (laughs) All right. But I think the other thing that could be could be concerning at least at some point uh, although she was very starry-eyed about all these men is ultimately she sounds a bit judgmental yeah it's true <laughs> which, which, which actually could be uh, uh, a source of certain inadequacies in a man when there's all this judgment going <laughs> pressure. on pressure yeah a lot of pressure there but this does this does draw a picture of what whimsy is not true so the third thing of note I suppose in unnatural death and okay so I was working at an ice cream shop last summer and a woman came in and we were talking about we ended up chatting about these books actually because she was reading them for her book group and she brought up the question she said like I'm Jewish and there's kind of I have questions about like whether this writing is anti-semitic or not because there was a Jewish character in the book and some of the characters are anti-semitic um, and so I told her that I would discuss it with my mom when we recorded this episode. That was a long time ago, so she may never hear this, but right. um, we'll talk about it now. I don't, I don't get that she's particularly anti-Semitic. I mean, you know, anti-Semitism was the pool in which you swam in, in England, in, in at, England. The time. Yeah. at the time. I mean, it's like sexism or anything else. I've read certain quotes and things that led me to believe that she was pretty like fair-minded about things, but she was again a keen observer of society, and so her characters, oh yeah, um, often kind of realistically are realistically insensitive or uh, biased. Well, and also she herself probably—I mean—they didn't have the same kind of political correctness and, and and language police that we have now, and so and, and also certain not as much maybe wokeness about certain things as we have now too you know like it's not just policing the language it's also going what does your unawareness about the language mean about your unawareness about your own 
biases, yeah. if you know what I mean. I'm sure that she, you know, there were certain things that she probably assumed about Jewish people, maybe about, you know, their financial rapacity or the reputed financial rapacity or whatever that might be there. But there, there's no active, like... Denigration. Denigration. Yeah, In the fact, characters are all well-fleshed. Well, especially in the first book, I thought it was rather lovely. One of the characters is Jewish. He's a uh, very rich Jewish uh, a financier. And he ma- ends up marrying a Christian woman. And she really touches on the ostracism, the attitudes that, you know, and he's a very um, noteworthy and laudable character. Mm-hmm. So reading these older books, sometimes things will come up. And it's in that person, and it's just because the times, and that's the way it was, but they're not actively, maliciously petting their own nasty biases. It's just, you know, they'll, they'll use words and things that just show a certain lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, do, I do think that's true. It is, it is there. I guess that's a warning, too, like a, a natural death has the N-word in it, and if you don't want to read that, right, it's in there. There is um, a character, he is described as like Black East Indian. He comes up as a distant relation who Whimsy has to go and talk to, and his name is Hallelujah Dawson. And I suppose we're going to reveal something about the plot, but he is innocent. And at a certain times, someone tries to frame him essentially for like a kidnapping and murder. And he's a reverend in the Episcopal Church. Well, actually in the Church of England, which is Episcopal here, is what we call it here. And yeah, and he's a, he's a lovely character, um, very charming. Uh, very, very sweet and kind, as all her reverends are, because I think her father, I think all of them are patterned after her father, Yeah. as is uh, Hallelujah Dawson. And I think he's the only black character. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. And I think East Indian means that he's probably from India. Yeah, that's so, it's kind of interesting this, that there's this story of, like, an immigrant who's... Well, um, not only that, he's in a, he's, he's a, a relative in a, in a yeah. white family, to a white family. He's exactly. actually blood relation to a white family. So um, she brings that into it. But it's always very light-handed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she doesn't use the N-word very much. I think in one other book it, it occurs as well. But it, yeah. it is used. Yeah. And again, it's the lack of awareness. It's the, oh, you know, this is just a word we use and don't think about it. it it's not a thread that pulls for them on all these bigger things because you just live in the middle of it but it is jarring all right next book okay what's the next one we should do you think we should talk about so the next book is unpleasantness at the bologna club we had to look up how to pronounce bologna because i was saying bologna um, <laughs> which is a city in italy but uh, yeah bologna is a goddess of war yes. and this is a club for veterans it's uh, the club that or one of the clubs whimsy belongs to yeah. and hangs out at right um, and he has a lot of veteran buddies from of various ages from different wars right and this uh, you know the, obviously a murder takes place and so but the, this book is really interesting one of the things i love about it is that so the novel was written within a little less than 10 years of the end of World War One. So a lot of the people, you know, are still around. It's still, you know, still very much in conscious current memory. And um, there's this part that takes place that I, I didn't know about is everyone wears a poppy on the Day of Remembrance because of the poppy fields of Flanders. And there's a uh, point where they are uh, tolling Remembrance and the bells ring, and everyone is supposed to bow their heads and stay silent for a minute, I believe it was. And they do it. And it's just something so atmospheric and so wonderful kind of about that morning 
communal remembrance for you know their dead comrades and people they knew and and the horror of the war and so forth and so that does occur in in Bologna Club yeah and it's a key um, and it's key to the plot as well yeah yeah there's some good stuff in there um, for one there is uh, a character that shows up for the first time Dorothy Sayers she writes herself into her books over and over again kind of she she mm. has these characters throughout the books that represent different parts of her that more explicitly or, or less so are really representations of herself and so there's this character in the book named Anne Dorland who's mm, mm-hmm. connected to the deceased and she is kind of described as not very lovely she's kind of and she's kind of sullen she's also an artist she's an artist and well she's a, a poor artist she um I believe they say she writes or something like that and she should have stuck with that but she starts to paint and her paintings are awful um but, but she was a good writer though right and she's part of um like a bohemian crowd and so people are sort of because she's not very good looking or whatever they they're sort of like either suspicious of her or um kind of talk down about her um but whimsy sees something in her and they have this conversation i'll pull up a quote yeah and it's very much so that she is like a mirror up to dorothy's physicality dorothy did not think much of her own looks and actually she's pretty cute you know later on she put on some weight and stuff and that disturbed her but she was very critical of her own looks and so this Anne Dorland is I think she's really disclosing her own body image and her own fear of her own unattractiveness and and her and the rejection probably that she like at Godolphin maybe that she uh, didn't fit in basically Anne doesn't fit into the bohemian life she's too serious she's too sensitive she's too you know steady kind of straightforward kind of person. So here's a quote from Whimsy to Anne Dorland as they're having dinner together. Um, He says, "Uh, may I be impertinent? Not an artist, not a bohemian, and not a professional man, a man of the world. For you, that is the kind of man who is going to like you very much. Look at that wine I've sent away. It's no good for a champagne and lobster sort of person. It's too big and rough, but it's got the essential guts. So have you. It takes a fairly experienced palate to appreciate it but it and you will come into your own one day. Get me? And I think that is what Dorothy, that's what she wants to hear. That's like her advice to herself. Yeah. But she, but she wants to, and that, else and, to tell her. And, and that's what she says to herself to, to uh, comfort herself. Mm-hmm. Because over and over and over again, she doesn't choose the man of the world. She might choose the man who presents himself as the man of the world. It's sort of an ersatz copy of what she really wants. 